Welcome back. ESCOM has received relief from government that has finance minister Enok Kodongwana said treasury plans to take on more than half of the state utilities debt over the next three years. Now this move will help the struggling SOE to strengthen its balance sheet and operations. And joining me now as we unpack all the issues facing ESCOM is the chairman Mpo Magwana. Thank you so much for making the time Mpo. Let's actually start off with the most recent developments and that is the resignation of Andre Dereta with immediate effect after the meeting that was had yesterday. And I'd just like to know from you, what was so pressing that he had to leave with immediate effect and that he couldn't wait until the end of his notice period? Thank you very much for having us this evening. There, there are two principles in corporate governance. As a non-executive director of any company, listed, public, private, you serve on that board of directors as long as you enjoy the confidence of shareholders. The moment as a non-executive director you lose the confidence of shareholders, they tend to express that at the AGM when they vote directors in or out. But a seasoned non-executive director would know to not wait for that occasion. Equally, when you're an executive director of a board of directors of a company, you serve uh, because you enjoy the confidence of that board of directors and that confidence tends to be because you're doing three things well. Firstly, any chief executive has to firstly be on top of the delivery of their numbers. The numbers would mostly be in two fears, it would be commercial and it would be the technical numbers in relation to the business that they lead. Secondly, you would need to demonstrate that on top of your game in terms of leading people effectively, inspiring people to perform. Because that's, what, uh, that's how we get results when there's high performance in an organization. Thirdly, you enjoy the confidence of that organization when the, you lead and ensure that there's a functional corporate culture. Uh, because that's how you shape the correct values in the organization. That's how you ensure that you inculcate all the disciplines and all the good norms and values that answer the question, what does it mean to work here? Those three things together, when you do them well, and of course if you don't do them well, mm. they show up in the reputation of the company. And so as chief executive officer, you're also the chief reputation officer of the organization that you lead because all of us as directors, executive and non-executive, have one among our duties, have to ensure that primarily we serve the best interest of the companies that we lead. And so the principle here is that the board felt that on, on the particular matter of being the chief reputation officer of the organization, that Mr. Director had failed. Yeah. And also he also acknowledged when he had the engagement of the board before we recused him. He said, if uh, it is clear to the board then that I have caused embarrassment for ESCO, I herewith offer to leave earlier than the end of March uh, date that we had agreed on goodwill yeah. because my notice period ended on the 28th of February. And the board deliberated and accepted his offer to leave a month early. I'm interested, um, Paul, because in the last few months, uh, there's a school of thought 
that says that the board seems to have overtaken the role of the executive team where it seemed that there was maybe a little bit of tension, a bit of conflict between management and the board. So would you say that maybe the board had taken over uh, uh, the role of the management because there had been signs that management is not doing what it is supposed to do? I think that it's a misperception. Okay. Anywhere in the world, you find four types of boards. You find a board that is controlling, where the the board might be deemed to be controlling as in fiddling with management. Yeah. Often, if especially when you find that there's a majority shareholder that serves on that board, they, it, it becomes inevitable. Okay. You then find another extreme of a board, which is called a certifying board. They just uh, wait for management to prepare whatever management prepares, and all they do is rubber stamp what management tells them. Then you get the third board, which is worse than the certif uh, certifying board, which is the passive board. They simply come to the board to have tea and biscuits. Uh, we often hear of uh, in the olden days when packs used to be delivered in big brown uh, envelopes or big white envelopes, you would even find such directors only opening their packs as they sit down in the board meeting. Very clearly, they've not read their packs. They've not prepared. All they're going to do is uh, say yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, and the meeting is out in two hours. Then you get the other board, which is the engaged board. Most high-performance companies have got engaged boards. What it means is that the board understands the strategic detail of the business without being hands-on in the business. And so, as an executive leading uh, such uh, a company, you need to ensure that when you go to board meetings, you appreciate that your board members have read, you're going to meet a board that have read their packs. You're going to meet a board, in our case, we've got eight engineers on our board. Mm -hmm. So clearly they're going to ask you very detailed So questions. are you saying you're an engaged board? We're an engaged board. Okay. And Not we, controlling. we adopted to be an engaged board from day one. Yeah. Simply because we understood that our mandate is to lead an organization that is very important for the economy of South Africa. Uh, we use the word that it's got a systemic impact on the economy. Yeah. Uh, beyond the economy, it's got a systemic impact on our daily lives. Our daily lives are digital. Um, life is impossible today without electricity. Um, and therefore, we need to ensure that as a board, we have the requisite sense of agility, especially given that the country is in crisis. Yeah. Now, when you sit in an environment such as this one, where the, the, the head of the country as the chief executive officer of the country also chairs a crisis committee that is about your core business, surely it must be appreciated by any executive team in this context. Uh, so if we take it back into the ESCOM context, mm. the chief executive and the ESCOM must understand that when you are front of mind of the president of the country, the president of the country is going to ask various ministers about what is the update on this or the other. Your ministers are going to be uh, constantly on the case of your board members, asking, especially the chair of the board, asking difficult questions. Yeah. Now, neither the minister nor the board chair can say to the president, sorry, Mr. President, or sorry, Mr. Minister, I must still go and get a report. 
you need to have the data at your fingertips. You need to be able to say, um, as chair now, in our weekly status meeting or our fortnightly status meeting, this is where things are at. And as of last night, in the WhatsApp briefing, whatever quick briefing, mm -hmm. I got a snapshot that the reason we were today on level six or level five is because of this or the other. Yeah. That is not interference. That is a supportive board. I mean, you may have seen this also during COVID. When companies were in distress under COVID, a lot of boards that I serve on that are blue chip enlisted, we met weekly in the, in the first uh, few weeks of 2020 with the lockdown because the numbers were down, everything was depressed and you needed to ensure that you supported your executive colleagues, first league, A league performers as they were you still needed to be there available weekly, fortnightly. Mm. And as the crisis eased off, you also eased off your involvement. So it should be understood that you're in a time of crisis and therefore it is inevitable that your board is going to want to have the requisite answer at their fingertips. Yeah. All right. Last question on the management issue. I understand that you're looking for an acting CEO while you are still in the process of finding a permanent one uh, to replace Andre. Because you said that ESCOM has a systematic impact on the economy, it is in uh, the public interest, should this process then of finding a CEO not be a public one, where the public also can see what's happening and where they also have a say? So two things must be clarified. Uh, we did yesterday uh, agree on a proposal for an interim chief executive. However, in terms of our MOI, we have to just get concurrence from our shareholder to confirm that uh, we're aligned. And so we've got that confirmation. As it is, after this interview, I've got a seven o'clock uh, virtual engagement with our exco yeah. at ESCOM. And among others, I'll be informing them who we've agreed uh, to appoint as the acting uh, group chief executive. Your second part of your question, we follow the PFMA process being a public entity. So we published uh, in all the major publications that we're required to. Uh, there were advertisements for the position. But equally, because we're looking for the best person wherever they are in the country and in the world, we also appointed a search firm. And so that search firm is busy as we speak, uh, gathering a long list of potential candidates that will be presented to the nominations committee of the board known as the governance and strategy committee in the first week of march then we will look at that long list agree people that will be approached uh, and to the extent that we can fast track we'll fast track so that uh, by mid-april we're able to finalize those interviews and uh, emerge with a potential candidate yeah all right let's come back to the current problem that we have right now of load shedding it has been revealed that uh, we have been on stage seven something that escom failed to announce to the public that people can prepare for and i just like to know from you what what happened there what does that highlight and does it mean that as we walk the path of trying to end load shedding that things will get worse before they get better what is important is that uh, we adopted a plan on the 10th of, August, of december that plan has been widely debated uh, with key stakeholders that plan uh, is constantly being refined 
as and when new information comes to the fore, uh, but most importantly being refined with a view to bringing down load shedding to reasonable levels. You can never have comfortable levels of load shedding, but at least if we can consistently be hover around level three, level two, uh, it will begin to bring stability to our system. So hence we've said that we're driving very hard towards a stretch target of achieving 60% energy availability factor by 31 March 2023. It is a stretch target because we, we needed to stretch our executive uh, teams in the technical space mm. to not just say no, but we're going to achieve this target. We said, no, let's aim higher. And where's it sitting now? Uh, it's below 57%. It hovers around 53, 54, 55, depending yeah. on the performance of the six challenging uh, power stations that we've prioritized as important for improving energy availability factor. Yeah. We then have committed that uh, 31st March 2024, we will push a, another stretch target to aim for 65% energy availability factor. And then hopefully by 31st March 2025, stretch towards 70. Once you hover in the 70 percentile of energy availability factor, you're as close as possible uh, not close, but as close as possible to the global benchmark of 86%. Was the target, Paul, when you took on the role of uh, chair, not 75? The 75% target was set by uh, the leader of our country, the president, mm. uh, in July of 2022, before we became board members. Okay. Uh, you may remember that when the president announced the National Energy Crisis Committee, uh, he stretched ESCOM to aim for 75% because they knew it would be about 11% below the global 86% benchmark. Mm. We came in as a board uh, at the end of September. And from the day one, sun, sun, sunrise, uh, 1 October, on a Saturday, we were already at Megawatt, beginning to engage and familiarize ourselves with people. And so we then put in place a board operational performance committee led by a seasoned uh, executive, former CEO of Altron, uh, Dr. Mteto Nyati, to then lead uh, a cohort of uh, our technical members of the board, uh, supported by one or two of our commercial, financially uh, uh, trained members of the board, yeah. to exactly put this urgency uh, before the board and before the executive. And that was one probably uh, irritant for the, the former group chief executive because instead of just being comfortable to have an audit and risk committee, investment finance committee and so on, we decided because we're going to be engaged, let's put the technical skills that we have on the board to good use. And they then are there to support our technical teams. Uh, we found early on uh, around uh, that period of the 10th of December uh, there was a workshop, the first workshop that uh, the Board Operational Performance Committee conducted uh, with the whole generations committee, especially power station managers, mm. uh, late November. They discovered that there was a huge gap between uh, people who are at the cold face relative to those that are sitting in the C-suite at head office, yeah. that they were not fully aligned. 
and therein comes the benefit of having a board uh, of directors of people who have led successful companies before they know that nothing beats the strategy of balancing being 33,000 above sea level and boots on the ground. Yeah. You've got to have a, a hybrid of both so that you're able to test from time to time whether what you're being told in the boardroom matches the material conditions on the ground. Yeah. All right, Mbo, we're talking about this electricity availability factor and that the target, ultimate target, right, is about 70% in 2025. Mm -hmm. Does that mean then we will deal with load shedding until 2025? Is that the absolute level where we can be comfortable, where we don't get load shedding at all? So when we've been saying as the board that management tabled a two-year turnaround plan that we've approved, that's what we meant, that yeah. it's going to take, on average, 18 months to 24, mo to 24 months for us to get on top of the situation. The big challenge is, and this is where we wish to express our deep thanks uh, to the government of the Republic through the Minister of Finance for the support that they've shown in the current budget that we now have uh, a little bit of uh, wiggle room because the reason we have linked the performance targets, the EAF, to financial year ends is because you've got to balance your maintenance budget uh, with the outputs of energy availability factor. Mm. And so as it stands, the return on investment on maintenance uh, expenditure, yeah. among others, shows up in the energy availability factor. It should also show up in having less unplanned capacity losses. So the un unplanned capacity loss factor, if it's too high, it means there's something we're missing mm. in our technical uh, space. And that's one area that we're sharply looking into. Yeah. Uh, unplanned outages is also another area we're sharply looking into. Some of it has been explained, as you've heard so many times, around talent. We believe some of it could well be a, a town legend. Uh, there's lots of talent uh, in the organization. It's largely around how you lead and manage the talent, how you inspire the talent to feel confident that we'll find that there's a better way. Yeah. Um, there's also a challenge in terms of uh, the board needing to reflect on whether there's too many maintenance contractors that end up disempowering those that are in the cold face uh, as unit controllers, as recovery managers, as power station managers, as cluster managers, needing to ensure that they do what they're best trained for. Mm. There, there's no rationale really why if I'm trained at ESCOM and at engineering school that I still have to wait to have someone over my shoulder coming to tell me how to keep the lights on. So that is also an area where we need robust, robust review mm. to satisfy ourselves that the technical contractors in maintenance that are there are serving the best interest of ESCO. Yeah. Let's talk about that debt, that $254 billion, uh, that was taken over by Treasury, of course, as announced in the budget yesterday. Mm. How does that then translate to households and businesses that have been struggling uh, under load shedding and also, how does it, does it have any influence on what we're paying? It firstly allows ESCOM to have better options in managing its balance sheet. Remember that we have debts uh, 
that uh, we've incurred through the sovereign as we were in engaged in the build program, as we engaged in various other uh, programs in the organization as part of keeping the lights on. And so you want to ensure that you improve the liquidity mm. of the organization. When you've got uh, improved sense of liquidity, you start making better strategic choices than when you've got your back against the wall and you're constantly living hand to mouth. So it doesn't give us license to be lavish. Mm. It doesn't give us license to suddenly uh, go willy-nilly with our expenditure. Because remember also that our revenue model is regulated by NASA. We still have to behave uh, within the regulated uh, revenue model, but we now have a little bit of leeway in terms of what we can spend on maintenance. We now are able to put to effect the funding model that we agreed with uh, other players in the National Energy Crisis Committee in terms of sustainable funding for diesel when we need to run uh, you know, our OCGTs uh, to ensure that where the main fleet uh, goes sparkles under pressure, we've got the emergency diesel uh, generators that can then keep the lights on. Yeah. So what it means is that we will be able to have a little bit of consistency a little bit of focus in ensuring that we deliver proper technical maintenance as we should mm. uh, and ensure that where we've been saying we need more talent, we'll be able to also have a bit of wiggle room to add uh, quality talent onto our bench strength. So is it not going to filter through uh, to some sort of relief in terms of the tariffs that we pay? It, it is not about tariff relief. Mm. Uh, certainly as ESCOM, we will be constantly guided by our policy ministry, our shareholder ministry, because remember we do sign a shareholder compact every financial year. Mm. Uh, those are the avenues that government has to, for instance, you may know uh, perhaps that in most uh, rural communities and townships uh, from a low-income household point of view, there's always those free basic units of electricity that households get to benefit from in line with cushioning the impact. So we'll constantly look at those prospects to look at what we can do to ease that impact. But what must be remembered is that in the municipal space, municipalities buy from us in bulk, mm. they add a markup, so they too are going to have to reflect on their own revenue yeah. lines in terms of not putting up high markups so that we all systemically, collectively find ways of minimizing the impact yeah. uh, on small businesses and on the poor members of our society. Sompo, is there no certainty then on more reasonable, predictable levels of load shedding at any point? The predictability comes when we start addressing effectively those other factors that I mentioned of capacity yeah. loss factor and uh, unplanned outages. Yeah. So as we start being more disciplined in our maintenance and the other opportunities that we also welcome is the opportunity, the, the, the first steps that government has taken with the rebate on uh, rooftop solar. Mm -hmm. um, our hope is that we, as we learn uh, those mechanisms that hopefully year on year, uh, our government through National Treasury will constantly find more opportunities. Because we've seen elsewhere in the world, for instance in Vietnam, uh, where rooftop solar offers huge uh, benefits in terms of a buffer 
just to add more megawatts onto the grid while it allows you space to focus on the technical uh, yeah. reliability of your plants. Yeah. Um, we spoke about liquidity earlier on, and one of, one of the problems that ESCOM had had is the difficulty to get rebates, uh, diesel rebates from SARS, I think uh, at about 5.9 billion rand. Mm. Are you getting enough support from the shareholder in terms of getting those rebates back? That support is there. So we have uh, in NECOM uh, a number of what we call streams. There is a stream that looks at all those instruments of public finance. Um, and we are quite confident that we'll get uh, those rebates uh, at the earliest possible. Yeah. All right. Um, obviously, we know that um, you still have to maintain the power stations, but also at the same time, uh, get in renewable energy. How much of that do you need in your mix? Um, what's the pipeline looking like? So currently, the country has got a national just energy transition plan. As ESCOM, we've got our also our own uh, Just Energy Transition Plan. Uh, we're moving off a base where currently more than 85% of our fleet continues to be coal. And so last year, you may have picked up that we announced the repurposing of uh, Gomati Power Station. Around that power station, there's huge opportunities for ESCOM to do some really innovative things in renewable. One such uh, initiative is in the area of the Free State, not far from the town of Brantford. We've piloted uh, something that we loosely refer to as power station in a box. So it's a container, uh, a, solar, a solarized container that is able to, in what we call a microgrid, uh, create small power supply for up to 50 homes. This, in fact, is a huge opportunity when we talk about uh, cushioning the poor. Mm. There's an opportunity for private sector to partner with ESCOM because the, that container at a cost of roughly 2 million rands can, can power 50 homes mm. and immunize them from load shedding. Uh, in, in this pilot uh, in the Free State, this container in a box is guarded like gold by that community because they don't experience load shedding. Yeah. So if we could partner with more private sector players that come in, whether out of their enterprise development, uh, CSI budgets, that we can roll out more of these. They are manufactured by ESCOM uh, in, in our road tech industry engineering space. And so they are available for us to roll out more so that especially because 50 homes from that box, it would be people that are among the indigent. Mm. And so we are constantly looking at uh, a business case there to be able to roll out uh, as many as we can a year. If we could roll out about 100 a year, yeah. it will make a huge difference. Mpo, we know that corruption is a very big issue. Um, I think it, it's something that filters through to all sectors. Um, just in terms of tackling corruption at ESCOM, what is the sentiment there and is it actually filtering through to leadership and not just um, employees on the ground? The board uh, made it very clear when we assumed office uh, in, in at the end of September last year that corruption, uprooting corruption, is paramount to the success of these plans that we're talking about. Whether it's as we've publicly declared, uh, whether it's uh, perceived corruption that may be visible in the coal supply chain, 
uh, in some aspects of our uh, value chain, in maintenance, in security services, all those areas, uh, methods have been put in place. You may have picked up when we were at SCOPA in Parliament uh, a few weeks ago, where we had the Hawks uh, as well as the SIU with us, presenting independent of us in terms of the successes that they were seeing with how much they were going far in terms of internally uh, uprooting internal uh, cases inside ESCOM, uh, ranging from where employees in ESCOM may have interests uh, while they're working for the organization, yeah. right through to where they may be undeclared and, and clandestinely doing business with ESCOM while they work for ESCOM. So all these measures are aimed at cleaning up the culture that we've inherited from state capture to ensure that we create integrity in the system. It's going to take time, but it is top priority for us. Uh, if you look at our published statements that we released on Christmas Eve uh, last year, which were, was delayed uh, uh, annual financial statements, you will see the, some of the audit findings point exactly to the need of how we should strengthen the internal control environment yeah. to make sure that we uh, blow, do a blow on corruption. All right, Tempo, we do have to wrap up the interview. And I'd just like a quick word from you on what you'd like to say to South Africans right now um, that are sitting under stage six, stage seven, whichever stage, but that are really whose businesses are buckling under the pressure of load shedding. Mm. Um, households that are really struggling, even taking out uh, money to pay electricity that has been hiked. Mm. What would you like to say? I think firstly, I'd like to say that we live in the same country. Uh, some of you who run these businesses that are going through strain are our cousins, are our relatives. You are, we are your children. We are part of you. And so what gives us a spring in our step every morning, what makes us say we're an engaged board as opposed to a passive board, is because we appreciate the urgency with which we must act to ensure that we st restore some semblance of normalcy at ESCOM so that you're able to enjoy security of supply as you've known it before. However, we must appreciate that we are in a changing global economy, and so we're going to have to constantly balance our expectations in terms of also from time to time, especially those that can afford, must ask themselves this question. If I can delay buying that luxury car, and rather put rooftop solar so that I put a land shoulder to wheel, perhaps let's do so. Mm. Drive that current car that you have a, a year or two longer so that you can help relieve pressure by doing your fair share of putting rooftop solar. As businesses, as we review our capex, uh, let's look for opportunities to put rooftop solar at our corporate offices because that is going to go far in terms of brightening up our ability to add more megawatts. Lastly, every major street trans intersection in our country, where I, I don't want to mention street names, mm, but mm. any major intersection has a corporate office uh, in that intersection or in that main street. It will also do well for us if as part of our CSI incorporations that we club together and look at how we can put solar on traffic lights so that we decongest traffic, especially due to load shedding. So all I'm saying is, let's all step back. Uh, the problem is here. There's no blame game that's going to wish it away.
Mm. Let's look at what is my fair share that I can contribute as big business, as uh, an affluent member of society, upper middle income earners, so that if we do that, we then in that way also help the poor that can't invest in these things to at least have a little bit more megawatts uh, in their homes. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and just updating us on what is happening at ESCOM and what we can expect in uh, the short to medium term. Thank you very much. And Paul, that was the chair of ESCOM, Paul Magwana.